Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I have the privilege of talking to people who have expertise in well-being of young people and how to promote it. And today, I'm just delighted to uh, connect again with a, an old friend of mine and colleague, uh, Dr. Noel Cranswick, who is a paediatrician and is the clinical pharmacologist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. So welcome, Noel. Thank you very much, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. It's been a chaotic last couple of years, 2020, 2021. The effects of COVID on young people. Let's start there, Noel. What's, what's, what are you seeing? Well, I think that from a paediatric point of view, we've seen a lot more referrals of young people with anxiety and exacerbation of pre-existing symptoms that they may have already had that has raised them up into the clinical sphere. So people who had subclinical anxiety and could cope with it suddenly in the last year have re required more input to help them deal with it. Any specific kind of issues that you've been noticing more of? I think that increasing anxiety around school, around friends, about ability to access the normal supports that they have, have been lost. Mm. And so young people who would normally catch up with friends regularly uh, for that support have been unable to in the normal way and felt isolated at home during lockdowns, I think. Yeah, one of the things I've been seeing is that it's almost like people are building a bit of a feng shui of their, their friendship list and wondering whether you know, they'll keep the friends they had prior. And I think that's also going on for kids. They're a bit worried about it. You know, the friends that I had at school before this, before the lockdowns, are going to be still my friends when I return to school. Don't they really come across that at all? Yes, I think that's been part of it. I think that young people connect differently online to face-to-face -to -face, and then in the short times they go back to school, it's then coping with that change and have their friendship, friend, friendship groups changed. And also I think that maybe they've connected with different people online just because of access to the ones they would normally connect to at school. And it's so they've struggled with that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you think this generation of young people probably are better suited than any previous generation to maintaining their social connections through online mechanisms. And yet this has been clearly a, a great jolt for them. So I think it's really emphasised the importance of face-to-face -face in our interactions that online does not fulfil our full needs mm. for social interaction. And I, I believe that young people how use social media differently to how they use face-to-face. -face. It's a different sort of interaction that probably is not as suitable for the day-to-day -day support that you need. So you and I both see families as well as young people, parents, homeschooling, all, all of working from home. Tell me what you're, what you're noticing there. Yes. So I think that the anxiety I believe anxiety in society is much higher than it has been for a while because of the pandemic. And that, that filters down to families and young people suddenly at home, instead of uh, everyone dispersing during the day and then coming back in the evening, uh, families are locked in the house the whole day, parents working from home and the anxiety that creates, young children needing schooling and support. And then there's also the adolescent and the young people uh, trying to then cope with their high school education in a fairly uh, chaotic, sometimes an unsupervised environment. And of course, homes aren't meant to be multiple offices and school classes. There's often just 
several areas and people have to interact much more. And I think that's been very stressful for families. I haven't done any research on this, but one of the observations that I um, noticed is that girls are probably faring less well than boys. And part of my thinking around it is boys often play games online together. So we can discuss our kind of, you know, attributes on Call of Duty or whatever game it is that we play. Whereas girls, perhaps less inclined to be gamers, rely more on the social events in their lives as conversational fuel. And uh, perhaps, you know, what have you been up to? Oh, not much. What have you been up to? Not much. And so it's a bit of a tougher world. I, do you think there's some merit in that or is that uh, a bit of just a, a false impression? My impression is we're getting many more girls, uh, adolescent girls presenting with anxiety than we were boys, although there's a significant number of boys, but there's a large number of girls presenting clinically with increasing anxiety, with OCD. I think that families have struggled, as I said, and I think that young girls have found it harder to use the social media to fulfil the, the interactions that they normally have uh, compared to boys. I think that's right. But also we're seeing clinically a lot more girls presenting with anxiety than we were boys. So what sort of almost um, the usual level of anxiety then has sort of sprung into a clinical realm in many cases and in different ways as well too. Um, one of the observations I would say is that I probably see more rumbly tummies and pain than I used to and um, not significantly less rumination but, but a bit less of the, the upper head stuff and more of the lower gut stuff. I don't what sort of trends are you noticing in terms of the types of anxiety expressions? Yes, we have some patients uh, and their families that recognise more their anxiety is a, a psychological problem and we are seeing more physical manifestations of anxiety and abdominal pain is by far the most common but not the only presentation that young people have. Um, I think it's sometimes easier for girls to express their anxiety in physical uh, ways to say I do feel butterflies or I feel pain or discomfort is sometimes an easier way of explaining than I'm more anxious or upset. The other thing we're seeing is uh, children with OCD, uh, so obsessional compulsive disorder, uh, actually have their symptoms have been exacerbated from uh, where they could contain their compulsions to now that their compulsions are escaping more and they're finding that more difficult and that exacerbates their anxiety. So they're sort of using almost their compulsive behaviour as a, an attempt to try to quell their levels of anxiety, often unsuccessfully, sadly. Um, and that what then topples into more kind of perpetuated behaviour, you think? Or? Yes, I think so. I think it increases um, anxiety because those compulsions can be distressing for them and the people around them, especially if you're locked in the same house. So that we're in a compressor, aren't we, all together for extended periods of time? And it makes it hard to kind of really enjoy one another when we spend every moment of every day with one another. That's that's such a key business, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So screens have been valuable in that way as an outlet, but they've also been perhaps um, a bit of a mixed blessing. So let's talk about screen usage during this time. I think screen usage is problematic. Uh, in that it, it was mostly used, I think, in the past for relaxation, uh, 
And when you're at school, you may use a screen part of the time, but it's not everything that you do. But suddenly the one medium becomes how you learn, interact with other people and what might be relaxation with games. And so I think that it becomes problematic from a couple of points of view. Firstly, your life becomes dominated by the screen, but also there can be physical effects of watching the screen all day, causing headaches, may participate migraine. Um, people are not getting out doing the exercise that they might do because they're being stuck on the, on the screen. And I think that there's probably, I don't think we fully understand the, the medical long-term ramifications of using screens so much. It's a relatively new technology, but certainly one example is thought to be that getting out in the sun is good for your eyes. So that people who don't get out in the sun actually end up more likely to wear glasses. And that's thought to be a whole lot of things to do with light. That was, it's not clear whether screens will exacerbate that in the future. So. Let me be a bit speculative with you that, you know, clearly one of the ways that we all manage our stress is catching up with people and doing things with them. It's in some ways one of the highest levels of managing stress is to talk through our problems or relate to our friends or see our family members. So when we're on Zoom or whatever platform we use, it's often harder to harmonise, isn't it, in terms of a conversation, not quite sure the other person's going to finish what they've got to say and so on. And, you know, I experienced some of that in this, this interview, trying to make sure that we uh, give you enough space and so on. So I wonder if that's lacking in our screen interactions, which is normally if we were face-to-face, -face, Noel, we'd kind of have the time to kind of, in some ways, engage in a conversational dance with one another, which would calm both of us. I think that's, I think it is harder to recognize those nonverbal cues and even some of the verbal cues over screen, screen time. So in normal interaction, you walk into a room and you can often get a gauge of the room before anyone says anything. Is this a room full of anxiety or is this a calming room? And on screen time, we have no opportunity for that. We very much rely on the, the, the small box of the other person that we can see to try and gauge their, um, their um, emotional state and uh, what reactions they're having to us. Um, and so I do think it makes it harder to, to actually uh, decide has the conversation ended well. And then there's also how do you finish what you're saying to invite the other person to respond. And that is a difficult, that is a difficulty sometimes and talking over each other is quite common can't help but think as you say that of the difficulty of teachers as they would normally walk into a classroom and read the read the room and now it's almost impossible isn't it to read you know a certain number of students as you walk in i you know take my hat off to them i must say but let's spend our time talking a bit about how we manage anxiety because that's that's really an important issue as well given we've got this surge in the expression of it and in some ways um a variation of types of anxiety that we're seeing. Let's go through perhaps some of the ways that we manage anxiety effectively. So I think normally people will firstly, when they're anxious, seek out friends and support locally. So it might be school friends uh, or other friends outside school. They may well use school counsellors uh, to give them extra support if the anxiety is affecting their schoolwork. And if the anxiety is not controlled through that or through family supports, they'll often see a psychologist. 
Uh, one of the things we've found during the lockdown is psychologists do most of their work face-to-face and that's been stopped. And uh, there are some psychologists doing work over um, telehealth, so through Zoom or other media. And my experience is young people haven't found that as useful as face-to-face. And it's also meant a bank uh, backup of clients who are trying to access psychologists and psychologists are in great demand. And it's almost impossible now as a new patient to see a psychologist in the near future. And so I think that's been a big uh, problem. And so a lot of that, those uh, young people with anxiety are now moving on to uh, seek medical help because there's not the psychological help they would normally go to. So they're seeing their GPs or a pediatrician. And we have limited um, ability to offer the, offer the psychological support that a psychologist would. And as their anxiety is increasing, it gets above that threshold where we would then start to use medication. Normally, we would use medication in general for things such as anxiety, uh, ADHD, oppositional defiant, sorry, uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. We would use that in a, a way with a psychologist to support. And the difficulty has been the psychology support has not been available. So young people are taking new medications alone without the normal support we would hope they would have. But if the anxiety or the other symptoms are severe enough, it is appropriate to use medication as you would for any other illness. So my impression, and you'll know more than I, obviously, is that the research on medication with depression in teenagers is not quite as efficacious as it would be for anxiety, that actually anxiety medication does make a major difference. Would you yeah. comment? Yes, yeah, so um, medication, and we're mostly talking about antidepressants, and these days that's what are called SSRIs, uh, such as Lovan or Zoloft, and medications people might have heard of. They are very, relatively ineffective in adolescence uh, in depression, and that's been well demonstrated, whereas they work much better in older people. Mm. Uh, and their side effects in depression are sometimes unacceptable because of their lack of efficacy. Having said that, with anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder, they are effective. They can decrease the level of anxiety, the baseline anxiety, and help a young person cope better, and can certainly decrease the level of obsessions that a, that a young person feels, and they are able to then control their compulsions that are based on that. Uh, in general, uh, most the most commonly used medication is one called fluoxetine or Glovan, is it's uh, the common name that's used for it. And it's generally very well tolerated. It has a small list of uh, severe side effects like most medications do, but the majority of young people uh, who are aware of that don't get any of those side effects. And I think that's an important understanding. Just because a medication has a long list of side effects doesn't mean that you'll get any of them, but it's important to know about them because if you get one, you can identify that as the being the medication and not something else in your life. So if you're if you're feeling more anxious or you're getting feelings of suicidal thoughts, which is well described but rare, you can identify that as being the medication talk to someone about it and not think that that's coming in from internally. 
So here we get into the really interesting world of helping parents of young people who are experiencing anxiety deal with the thinking around relative risk, don't we? And as practitioners, we need to really help them to try and think clearly. Yes, there are potential side effects, but there's also, of course, the long-term effect of enduring intolerable OCD or anxiety. How do you go about helping a parent to weigh up the pros and cons of medication using that sort of way of thinking? I think it's exactly that. It's giving a risk-benefit analysis for the particular young person in their family. Initially, both young people and parents are reluctant to use medication because they're worried about the effects. Will this make my child more likely to be a drug addict or be addicted to these medications in the future? Will it have severe side effects? and the guilt that could be associated with that. There's certainly, by the time they come and see a paediatrician, there's a degree of functional impairment that often means that they're really looking for something and it makes the balance easier to justify. So in some ways, I think by the time the families are looking for that, they've already decided other things haven't worked, they haven't been able to access psychology, or it hasn't been that effective. The anxiety is impairing this young person's function, they're not able to attend school, even online. um, They're developing uh, some social phobias that even when they are allowed to go out, they're reluctant to leave home because of fear that may be partly real. I think it's fair to say we're all a bit scared about leaving home because we don't know if we'll be exposed to the virus or what that will mean, but you need that balance has been lost and they're so anxious to be coming locked down at home. And so families often are looking for something and then it's about saying, well, here are the potential side effects. We believe in this particular case that the risk of not treating is greater than the risk of treating. Here are the side effects to be very aware of. And uh, then if you get some of these side effects, contact us and we need to make a decision whether to stop it or change or whatever, or decrease the dose. And uh, all of those may be options. And I've had several children and adolescents where another practitioner has got into this dilemma where they've tried several medications and been a problem. And because I'm a drug expert, they come to me for the next step. And we often can find a next step that we can implement safely. And uh, their anxiety can be managed, but in a safe way that they're not having significant side effects. It's probably worth pointing out that the most important side effect from antidepressants, which is written on the box, is it can make a young person have suicidal thoughts that they wouldn't otherwise have. Now, those suicidal thoughts are almost never acted on that the data says that they have the thoughts, but they don't act on those thoughts. And um, if they're aware of them, they actually occur in the first few weeks of medication uh, and then they can be managed and the medication can potentially be used long-term safely. Um, Sometimes those thoughts can be very intrusive, but as long as the young person realises they talk with their family about it, they talk with the treating doctor about it, if they've got a psychologist, they can be well managed and it's probably the most important thing for a young person to know these thoughts may occur if they do occur you need to let someone know straight away so they can be managed because they're not you they're the medication sometimes here parents say well we're a bit reluctant to go on anti-anxiety medication because 
one of the side effects if we withdraw from it is anxiety. And so it becomes a almost a treadmill of medication. What do you say in those instances? So these medications can have withdrawal syndromes. If they're withdrawn at an appropriate pace, that usually doesn't occur. Yeah. Um, anxiety will wax and wane and there will be a time to try and stop the medication and see whether the anxiety is resolved. And if the medication is drawn slowly, it's unlikely you'll get what's called rebound. You're unlikely to get a rebound anxiety that's withdrawn slowly. The problem is when young people suddenly decide to stop the medication themselves because they don't want it for some reason, and then that is problematic and they need to be warned about the problem of that. The other thing that does happen is young people get busy. They forget a dose of medication. And the question is, what do you do about that? If it's one dose, as long as they take the next dose, they'll be fine. But if you're forgetting it for several days, then you can get a withdrawal syndrome. And recognising that their increasing anxiety or other symptoms are due to a withdrawal syndrome means that they know they just need to start it again. They'll probably be fine. But also contact their treating doctor. One of the things that sometimes causes despair in my life are uh, people who either have medication or implement psychological strategies and they work. And then they come in to me and they say, well, I stopped all of that because I was feeling better. <laughs> and of course they were feeling better because they were implementing exactly the strategies that we were recommending. Um, I don't know if you have any magical words in that, that situation, but it certainly is an area I find a bit challenging. I think it's probably good to mention it proactively, say you will start to feel better. The thing that this therapy is what's making you feel better, just recognise that you will need to continue it for a period of time. Um, I usually try and give them a, a feel of how much time I'll try it for. So I might say six months, I think is um, a, a minimum. And then we can withdraw it if you want to, knowing that it can restart again and I think parents are often and young people are often keen to come off whatever treatment they're on, but just recognise it needs to be, it's best done in a controlled way with their therapist rather than just stopping it themselves. And uh, I certainly have had patients where they've stopped it multiple times, they feel worse. And then you say, why did you stop it? Well, I was feeling better and I don't. It's also a, a uh, we don't want to feel different to our peers. And if we're taking medication, even if the peers don't necessarily know that we feel different and we don't want to feel different. So I think that is a motivation for many of my patients to stop it. So they are the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that uh, it, it, you need to recognise that and that that's a motivation that can be above their symptoms sometimes. It's more important to fit in with your peers and appear to be the same than it is to have your symptoms treated. Noel, this has been a very helpful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. As you know, I am a long-time admirer of your work and of you personally. So I thank you and I want to honour the work that you do. I think you make a remarkable contribution to the well-being of, of young people. So thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up, in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people. 
and also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much and I uh, hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you.